Episode negative 12 from the vaults. This is another one of my very cherished conversations uh, from a previous podcast. Uh, this is with my friend Harrison Schultz on being an activist. Uh, Harrison was a major player in Occupy Wall Street um, back when the occupation was actually going down in Zuccotti Park. He speaks about that. Um, he has some kind of far out views about taking down uh, fiat currency and, and how he plans to do that and views on anarchy and the way people are supposed to live. And I love speaking about him, uh, speaking about these topics with him. Um, even though I don't agree with everything he says, I love his perspective. It's very well thought out. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think that's the greatest value of listening. One, I mean, in general to people, intelligent people with different views than you, but also listening to this particular conversation, no matter uh, where your views are on government and and money and activism. Uh, so this is about him basically sharing about his viewpoint as someone who uh, values anarchy and is uh, moving or hoping to move towards that in some fashion. Uh, so this is episode negative 12, Harrison Schultz, an activist life. You're listening to the Rwando podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. White Rhino and uh, Northern Lights mixed together in here. Cool, cool. Yeah, my my old roommate, uh, his stage, he's a rapper. His stage name is White Rhino for a while. <laughs> yeah, he actually uh, made the um, the intro music for the podcast. So I guess we'll keep this in. A little uh, shout out to him. That's cool. White Rhino, what's up? Yeah, we're smoking your <laughs> we're smoking your name today. <laughs> it's great. Weed. Yeah, so the 420... Th- oh, so funny thing. The 420 rally yesterday. Yeah, he made it. We didn't go. Yeah, so I left. I left after like an hour or something. I hung yeah. out for a bit. And I went to Tudor City Park, which I didn't even know existed. It was right across from the UM. I sat there. I ate some food. I'm sitting next to this Austrian chick. And yeah. we, started, we started having a conversation. It's whatever. You know, she was really cool. We had a great conversation. Turns out she's there from Austria because her husband is in the UN and they're in, in New York right now discussing um, drug legalization. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. didn't. Yeah. So she had no idea what 420 was. Like it was a, to her, it was a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was a coincidence either way. But you knew knew about it. Sounds like. right. Right. We knew that the delegates were all in there talking about shit and that they wanted a big presence out there. So it was like, uh, yeah, we did what we could. You know, we we've been lying low. Like we're just, I'm just starting to come back to like the public realm after some horrible shit, obviously. So yeah, you know, like uh, we're 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 in total solidarity with all the demands. I mean, all this stuff is really important. Like legalizing weed immediately, you know, repatriating people, and you know, pushing it further too. Like taking it to ibogaine, you know, yeah. and, and harm reduction, and and uh. And even legalizing psychedelics. I know there's 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 a new psychedelic ride. I was bombed. I got the mess. There's, there's there's some interesting stuff going on. Like the scene has definitely moved beyond Occupy Weed Street since yeah. like a year ago. So I want to zoom out for a second because the thing that I want to talk about all these details at some point. But like um, one thing that fascinates me about what you do is just the concept of activism. So I was at yeah, this rally yesterday, um, and like you said to me last time we hung out about how like you didn't choose to be an activist, like. You, it's like you have to be, you I mean, you said it in your words, but, um, which fascinates me because, and maybe like I'm part of the problem, but I'm pretty apathetic even about the things I care about, or maybe indifference the way to put it. Like, I think we should be legal. 
But when I was listening to all the speakers speak at the rally, I was like, do I feel that strongly about it that I would like come here by myself if you didn't invite me? Do I feel that strongly about it that I would like spend my time fighting for it? And the answer, honestly, is no, because I smoke as much as I want. I'm not concerned about the laws, to be honest. Just, yeah. So I'm just curious, like, and like listening to some people, and I know you feel so strongly about a lot of things, like, where does that come from? Desperation. All right. In part, desperation. Sorry, I didn't get to you. Yeah, like, um, the passion definitely comes from pain. Uh-huh. Definitely comes from personal problems. You know, it definitely comes from uh, an inability to adapt, an inability to adjust to what other people expect out of you. You know, uh, there, there's that Nietzsche quote, like, madness in, in individuals is rare, but in groups, individual, sorry, in groups, parties, epochs, ages, it's the norm. So, I mean, like, what is, what is insanity? Like, what is madness? Who is right? Who is wrong? Like... Um, just because everyone's going through their lives without smoking weed all day, does that mean that they're healthier than me? Like they think that they're healthier than me because they don't use this. They don't want to use this all day, every day, you know, like, I mean, even, even this, this comes into my family. Like, you know, like I, I, I smoke weed with some people in my family and like the amount of weed that I smoke scares them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they use a little bit, but like I use more because I need more. And, uh, I think uh, so and to answer your question, like that pain, that passion, yeah. like, I mean, it's, hmm. it, it's, it, there, there's, there's social pressure. It's, it, it comes from a certain social kind of forces, but th- I mean, there, there are like chemical biochemical things going on within us. I think that probably lead people to activism. So you, you think you might have an activism gene? Not quite a gene, <laughs> but just higher stress levels, higher, okay. uh, you do you know, think it has to come levels. from, so so I 100% resonate with you on like feeling different, like feeling insane compared to the population. And I've, I've, for whatever reason, I've never like attached that to smoking weed necessarily. Cause like I know people who are much more square than me who smoke more weed than me. And like, but they have regular jobs and they conform to everything else. Not to, you know, put them down, but no. like, but I do feel at least, especially even in my early twenties, I felt like very rebellious against that concept. Um, didn't take me to activism though. And so I wonder, Maybe it's, was it that I was just lazy about things I believed in or I didn't find something specific like marijuana legislation to, cause like I was just like, I would complain about it and then I would go like write poetry instead of going to work. Like that was my rebellion. Sure. Right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, a, that's all part of it. I mean, the other part of it is, uh, this is, I mean, activism is normal in my family. Like my family, I come from a long family of activists and, uh, you know, I, I'm used to watching my parents go out and do things like this. I mean, I grew up watching my, my Indian father go around and lecture on American Indian affairs to teachers all over the country. I mean, like, you know, um, I, I was pushed pretty hard, motivated pretty hard towards school. I gravitated towards sociology pretty easily. So, I mean, I've always had a certain awareness you know, that, that was just very much part of my upbringing gotcha. and a certain, um, a certain, with that awareness comes a certain responsibility. Like when you really kind of see it and when you know that things could get done, I mean, it, it gets to a point where you start bitching and complaining so much, where it's sort of like, 
here I am. I think things are so fucked up. Like I need to do something about it. Like I'm just, I'm just bitching, you know? And I think a lot of activists, quite frankly, they just go out in the streets and they bitch. They don't really know what they're fighting for. They don't really have an angle. They don't really, they didn't really do the research. They yeah. don't really have anything figured out. Well, that's one thing that impresses me about you. And I'd say, I don't know a lot of activists, but probably only 10%, maybe 15% of activists because like at the rally and activists I've met, most of them are just into the, I guess, the romance of being an activist, of being an activist. It's like when someone says, oh, I am a writer. And then you're like, what have you written? It's like nothing, but I am a writer. It's like they don't even want to write. They just want to oppose them. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I think that's most activists and perhaps most artists, too, because when you first were telling me about like your mindset approaching activism, it's like, well, that's just like an artist. It's like you're 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 directly engaging with the government, whereas like a photographer would make some surreal photography and that's his expression against conventional thinking. It's, I, I, it's yeah, I think it's interesting. Activism is, is a, it's a dirty word, you know, and I, I resisted becoming an activist for a long time, mm -hmm. even though I had this consciousness of it. Yeah. Cause it's just like, I don't want to be a part of the people who just get out there and annoy other people. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't want to be angry like that. Like I, you know, I want to have fun. I want to get laid. I want to like, do my thing and practice martial arts and just kind of get out, be out in nature and get on now. That wasn't my thing before, but now it is. So did you not smoke weed this frequently until recently? Yeah. I'm good. Thank you. That's another, I, I, I mean, I started smoking pot really late. Like I was into, I mean, martial arts, you know, is definitely very anti weed. I mean, my, my mom even smoked weed. Like a lot of, I knew my dad smoked weed a lot. Of, I knew a lot of friends smoked weed, but. And you didn't smoke weed? <laughs> not until I moved to New York and started getting into grad school. I mean, it was, I'm wow. a late bloomer. Like I only started doing this like maybe 10 years ago, roughly. Wow. And when I did, I mean, it totally, it just ups and downs with it, but it completely changed my life. That's so and interesting. To yeah. You. Cause I'm, I, I'm such an infrequent smoker, but I started pretty early, I guess, at 12. And then, and then I didn't feel like doing it much after high school at all. There's a certain progression to, to getting into it to the extent mm -hmm. that I've gotten into it. You know what I mean? And, and now that I, I'm into it at this level, I mean, I wouldn't want to smoke any less even when my problems go away. Like I still want to smoke. I still want to be a daily user. Like, do you think it, that it alleviates the discomfort of your problems or it actually solves your problems in some way? None of, none of them. It just gives you new perspective on your problems. Okay. It helps you look at it differently. Mm -hmm. it, it, it helps you see other options to solving your problems that you didn't necessarily see before. Like there's, there's a study. Um, I forget what year I want to say, like it's recent and it looked credible. Mm -hmm. It's, it's definitely like within the past 10 years. They put chili oil on people's hands mm -hmm. and they, um, it was, it was, they put chili oil in people's hands and then they would, you know, like half of them got weed, the other half didn't, and then they had to do a little test. And, um, you know, they didn't really do that much differently. The people who were high didn't do that much differently than the people who were quote unquote sober. And they didn't, um, report much difference in terms of how the pain felt either. The pain mm -hmm. hit both of them the same way. The thing was that the people who were stoned, you know, they just said that the weed didn't, that the pain didn't bother them as much. Mm. You know, like they were just kind of able to kind of flow more with the task. Like it's still there, but it's just mm. like, oh, okay. Cause that's exactly how someone would describe the benefits of meditation. 
it, I mean, it's it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. The the molecules that are getting released in your body that are attaching to your endocannabinoid receptors mm-hmm. when you're meditating is a non-demide, which is basically the same structure as THC. So basically, like a blunt is six hours of meditation or some some conversion like that to you. Basically, I mean, it's it's it's. Yeah, it's like meditation on life support, you but, know. But not not everybody who smokes weed would say that, right? Some people might even say the opposite. Do you think it's something about you that that ingests it this way, or is it like uh, Every, anyone could? Everybody's endocannabinoid chemistry is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, like some people. Sorry, you can clip it too. Blow a little bit more, but um, you know, some some people have. Higher levels of anandamide, I understand, is a fairly unstable molecule in the body. Mm-hmm. It breaks down pretty easy. It doesn't. It doesn't store. So, I mean, you feel like a euphoric rush, like oh, that's cool. And like, you know, THC, CBD, like you know, those stay in your fat cells a lot longer. Those mm-hmm. are more durable. They can stay. They don't break down as easy. You know, one of the chemicals that breaks down anandamide is is FAAH, and uh, this this basically has to do with stress. I mean, they do these tests on lab mice where they, they, they subject them to some stress and they see how their, their anandamide levels mm-hmm. fluctuate and stuff. And um, so, I mean, stress, that, that FAAH, that, that kills your, your natural buzz. So, like, if you have constant levels of stress, because say you're in fucking debt, like so many of us are, and, like, you just don't see a future. It's like, what am I doing all this for? I'm just trying to graduate so I can move ahead just to fucking pay off all these bills. Like... When, you know, like life just looks kind of like one long endless task of slavery, making other people rich. And you're like, what am I living for? I'm alienated from my passion. Even if I get to, and the thing that, you know, even artist people, like, you know, apathetic people, people who just want to have fun need to realize is that even if you are fortunate enough to focus on your passion in this, in this current social system, that passion is still just making money for other people. That passion is going for profit for other people. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be so talented that you can afford to give them their cut before you even get the cut of your own labor. I mean, this is why Marx talked about an alienation from labor, Mm -hmm. alienation from art. So, I mean, you know, it's like Harriet Tubman said, the hardest thing about being an activist, you know, like for her, the hardest thing she said is that I could have freed thousands of slaves. If only I could have convinced them that they were slaves, you know? And so, it's 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 a double-edged sword being an activist. It's like you have to convince people that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like you have to show them how bad it is, but you also have to show them how good it could be. And some people need different things. Like some people need to see more how good it could be. Some people need to see how bad it is. Yeah. And it's it's, you know, getting those groups of people to work together, working with those different groups of people. I mean, it takes a lot out of you. So, I mean, what's well, a backtrack to one of your, your examples? Do you think that capitalism is the root of all this problem? Like post-agricultural? What, what, what do you mean by capitalism? What is capitalism to you? Um, like the economic system where uh, there's competing forces and you're supplying, uh, you know, and you have to deal with currency. Okay. Um, and people can hoard wealth. I think we're getting to the, to the, yes. I mean, I think those things are the roots of all this. And I think that the root cause of those things that you talk about, economics isn't really real, in my opinion, like as, as a science, like they're, they're, 
yes, there are economies and monies move, but the way that economics looks at that is uh, questionable. You know, there, there are better economic there, there, there are bad, there are good economists and there are bad economists, and I don't think the good ones get listened to enough. The economists that I listen to talk about monetary reform. The economists that I listen to talk about the monetary supply. And uh, when we talk about capitalism, I mean, I think capitalism is uh, it, it is the root of all this. I mean, I, I am a Marxist scholar, you know, but like capitalism is just an idea. It's just a word that most people don't even fucking think about or use in their day to day lives most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's an idea that's not on people's minds. You know, so in the left and in Occupy, kind of the community, the scene, people who go out there and do this stuff, like for us, like we think that fighting, we have to fight capitalism, we have to overthrow capitalism, but what are we fighting against? Just this idea that most people never, how the fuck is that going to change people's behavior? How is that going to get people paid? And, and like, I mean, um, like I ran into a friend, you know, a, a neighbor, a, a guy I've been fighting alongside for years now the other day, and like, we are hanging out, and he's just like, oh, those people are so bougie. They're so bougie, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? Like, what, what the fuck is this? This is like the 18th century again? Like, like, like there's no Berger class anymore. There's no – like, like that just doesn't exist anymore. Like, the middle class doesn't even exist anymore. You know, and, like, there's this idea that, like, we have to find ways to be happy with less mm-hmm. in the left. There's this idea that we have to, like, be happy in the midst of austerity. As if, like, there's something zen about that. But it's just, like, you know, when, when I try to hang out with other – I mean, I don't I don't fit in with other activists. I don't fit in with the Occupy community. They they, they kind of love me or they hate me, and it's kind of both in most cases. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the most controversial people. I, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, for I'm, someone who's not – who only knows Occupy from, like, media, um, the whole the whole, like – politics within the Occupy community is so interesting, like how there's different groups and, and thoughts. Could you say a little bit about that and your role in it? Well, that's all it is, mm-hmm. different groups and different thoughts. I mean, that's, you know, Darwin said that competition within, you know, groups is always fiercest than competition outside of groups. Mm-hmm. And as much as you, you hear the left and as much as you hear Occupy trying to talk about collaborating and working together, with one another and about being non-oppressive and about being inclusive. It's like, it's just, it's just a big fight. Mm-hmm. Occupy started off as a big fight. How are we going to do this? And we just started fighting about it, you know, but because we were fighting about it in public, it just turned into this big conversation, this unpredictable success that none of us could have experienced. And so, um, you know, like, we didn't really start fitting. We, we didn't start like looking at each other as, as allies in, in many respects until the cops started kicking the shit out of us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this, this sociological con- concept called consensus through conflict. You know, like that fighting can keep people together. Hey, can keep people together as much as love. Yeah. But then that other pops up and it's like, oh, whoa, hey, we're cool now. You know? Huh. And that definitely happened in Occupy. And then, you know, when, when Homeland Security, you know, and, and, the federal coordination of, of the nationwide eviction separated us. Yeah. And our, our conversation more or less went back up onto, you know, street corners, smaller street corners and social media. Can you say, you could talk about your role within the Occupy community, how you're a controversial figure? Um, yeah. Um, 
I mean, I got involved with this when I was working in corporate America still. You know, I was, I was smoking weed and uh, um, just working really hard on my dissertation after school mm-hmm. and just looking through a lot of data and, man, just pushing my mind way too hard. And, I mean, I was like, what the fuck am I doing in advertising working for ExxonMobil? Like, I mean, I'm a mm-hmm. leftist scholar. Like, And so I started reading Adbusters. And this is after I um, had worked with Normal for a little while. I was trying to start up a New York City chapter of Normal, and I was in touch. I'm still in touch with those people. We just got back in touch over the weekend. Shout out to Empire State Normal. And um, so I was looking for a new project to get involved in, and uh, like I saw that ad in, in Adbusters with the bull on top of the ballerina. And so I wanted, you know, I mean, like right there, I'm like, I have a job. I'm not throwing away this job to go camp out in the middle of the streets. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I just wasn't going to do that, but it's like, I, you know, I had all these student loans I was really about. And like, it wasn't like a big deal. It was like, yo, like I could pay them off. I could work it off, but like, I shouldn't fucking have to. And I didn't want to complain about it too. Cause I was embarrassed. And I figured other people were there for reasons more serious than me. So, I mean, I didn't even bring up that I was there for student loans. I mean, strike that kind of brought all that up. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I, I got involved pretty early on, you know, and I, I was checking these meetings out and I, I spoke up at them pretty quickly. And, you know, I made friends like, like I would never, I mean, like the, the, the way it would work is that like, if you would speak and you would kind of say something, typically you would probably wind up having a conversation with someone on the side later, the real action at any kind of activist meeting always happens on the side. Mm-hmm. And that's what people kind of need to know. You know, there's, 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 there's a lot I could say just on how to become an activist and how to get involved and how to be efficient with the shit. I mean, like I went to school for this. How did you, how did you switch from, cause it's like a mindset where like most people would be terrified to not have a job for a week. Yeah. Um, and you made a transition from having a secure job to, you know, just doing this thing that doesn't pay you. Happened slowly, happened gradually. And I mean, abruptly too. I mean, like I tried to keep a foot in both on both sides of the fence. I mean, I tried to keep a full-time job throughout all of Occupy and I actually managed to keep an, uh, my, my job doing digital or sorry, business intelligence all throughout the occupation. I went to work nine to five, nine to six every day. And then I went after it before. And then, um, I mean, I had other activists who I was working with too, straight up telling me, yo, you got to quit your job. You got to move out of your apartment. You got to do all that. I'm like, uh-uh, like I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And I just did what I did at work for, for the movement. I mean, I just did business intelligence the best I could for yeah. OccupyWallStreet.org. Hmm. And looking at that, like I saw how big the market was. I saw that there was money in activism. And I was aware of donations. I mean, like there's, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who, who work full-time jobs who know things are fucked up, but who have their responsibilities to other people, other family members, their community, whatever. They can't throw away their jobs. Like they can't, they know they're, they know they're stuck, mm-hmm. but they're, they're stuck in a comfortable way. They're, they're okay. They want to make a difference without making a personal change for themselves. Yeah. Those people, they contribute in other ways. And I mean, like um, so many, so many people on the left alienate those people. But we had managed, I mean, just being there and doing what we were doing, like we, we just opened this thing up. So many lonely people all throughout the country and the world just opened up their hearts and started talking and they opened up their wallets too. Like when they, you know, the, 
the, the, the direct link there was always live stream. Like mm-hmm. when they, when they could see us on live stream and when, when they would tweet with us, tweet to us, you know, I mean, like when, when they would see the cops coming, when they would see that we'd be out there freezing our asses off, it was like, yo, like money would come. And I say we, I mean the royal we. I mean, I wasn't really getting, I didn't get any of that money that came in the first wave. Like mm-hmm. I, 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 I was still working and I mean, you know, a lot of what I did back then too, I opened up my home and I let a lot of people come through. I got a lot of people high, bought food for a lot of people, just hand to mouth, you know, and like I, I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working both sides of the fence. I mean, I was, I was, I was something like, damn, I have a job. Things are going good for me. I'm not desperate. Yeah. You know, and you want to help, but you don't want to get taken advantage of when you're helping either because, you know, desperate people drowning, they're going to lash out and they're going to take as much as they can take. Yeah. And it's a fine line you got to walk as an activist. And so the other thing that happened too is because, I mean, like I, I fucking walked down there in a suit just to show people, just to show the other activists and to show the world. Yes, I, I work in corporate America, and here I am at an anti-capitalist movement. You know, like, I, that was important to me. Yeah. Because working in advertising, working, I mean, like, so many people in corporate America are pissed. Yeah. They know things suck. And when we say that we're an anti-corporate movement, those people see that we're against them as opposed to the system. You know, and, and you know, that reminds me, you and a suit reminds me of, like, a thing on John Kerry about how he became a public figure because – the um, anti-war movement needed someone who looked good in a suit uh, to, to represent them. And he was a, you know, as a veteran. And I mean, I was that guy. And so, I mean, I, I became a part of that, you mm-hmm. know, like I knew how to play that role. I knew how to, I know how to speak publicly. I've had advanced speech lessons in school. I grew up watching my Indian father do this his whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I just grew up doing martial arts demonstrations, just a lot of performance. And that, that's, that, that's a big thing in the United community. I mean, yeah. Indians, were kicked out of Milwaukee for about a hundred years. And the way that they started reoccupying the fucking city, their fucking homelands was by coming back and doing these little like shows, these little like Buffalo Bill Cody shows where they mm. do these reenactments and these re- villages where they get to camp out for a while and stuff. Performances through education and like bit by bit, they established footholds and legitimate businesses and stuff like that. And so, I mean, that line between like performance and then money and community building. I mean, my, my grandma's a really good, like, uh, grant writer. You know, she uh-huh. knows how to, she got Indian community schools funded there and stuff like that. So, like, art and education and, and, or weapons that my family have been using for older than any of us really know. So, do you ever feel like, um, I have to do this because I'm like the only one who could do it well? <laughs> because I see things that no one else can see. Mm-hmm. And it drives me fucking crazy that, I mean, that's not just that I'm not, no, I, I see things that other people see too. Like other people see these things and I know I'm not alone. But you're saying the thing that they're, they're not saying. Um, I, I can do things that other people can't do. I mean, like the monetary reform community is an older community. It's, mm-hmm. it's typically older people who find out about monetary reform and usually pretty fucking late in life, too late in life to usually do any, you know, to really like muster a lot. But um, you know, there's, 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 there's a, there's a long tradition of monetary reform in this country and throughout the world. And I never knew about it. I mean, it was something that I didn't even get taught in like my collective behavior or social changes class. I mean, and the cool thing about Occupy too, like for me, it, it was, it was protesting, but the community that, you know, got built off that, like for, for every fight I got into, I've made 
I mean, I've really like five fights I've gotten into. I've made like one or two really lifelong friends, or at least met people that I learned just amazing shit from. I mean, it was it was anarchy school from kindergarten to fucking post doctorate work, straight up anarchy school. Mm. And the more you went in there with, the more you got out of it. I went in there with a lot. Like I forgot I was an anarchist because I mean, like I, I remember um. The Battle of Seattle happened in 99. I was just like, damn, that looks like fun. Like, I want to go fucking riot. You know, like, I mean, just being pissed off. And, like, of course, like, Fight Club came out in 99, too. Yeah. And that, that anti-corporate thing. And, I mean, I'm, I'm a lifelong martial artist. Yeah. So I saw Fight Club and it was like, okay, well, it's it's rough. It's, the violence looks totally unrealistic to me. Yeah, yeah. But the, the connection between the violence and that anti-corporate theme was so obvious to me. It's interesting because uh, I like Fight Club definitely affected me a lot when I saw it. In fact, um, yeah. But I, I I interpreted kind of back to like the activism artist thing where I was just like I really want to like not go to work and do the, whatever the fuck I want and you know um, and but I didn't I even didn't think about the rioting part. I didn't think about the political side. It's interesting. It's probably yeah. a cultural thing or whatever upbringing thing. I, it's it's not just us having this conversation. I mean, there are other articles out there about the connections between Fight Club and Occupy Wall Street. My homeboy Nathan Schneider from Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Catholics in his book Thank You Art Anarchy, he's like, I have this theory that Fight Club helped start Occupy Wall Street, and it's like it did, you know, in a big way. And like for me, I mean, like I, I felt that playing out. It's like I saw that movie. I'm like, holy shit, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to become like that. I don't want to get stuck in that cubicle. And so I started soci- sociology and I really got into capoeira and, you know, I traveled mm-hmm. to Brazil to learn capoeira and I was looking for my escape, you know, but like it cost me money and like, and you know, like getting into school, like school didn't pay. Like usually you get full ride to get your PhD done, but like no doctorate work was really, I mean, there's no doctorate, program that's directly interested in capoeira like what does this have to do with sociology plenty but really just wanted to play capoeira you know and like um you know the the system catches up with you Mm -hmm. you know the the harder you try to get out of it sometimes the quicker it pulls you back in the debt starts catching up you know and your stand my standards of living just kind of started going up like i I wasn't content to stay in this little fucking dorm in chelsea Mm -hmm. you know like i wanted my own place and so if uh if all the things that you think should be fixed in society are fixed do you think you'd still be an activist well yeah i mean because the one change that needs to get fixed right now i mean that's just sort of the beginning Mm -hmm. you know i mean like the of all the things that need to get fixed, the one thing is the monetary system. I think the thing, the the, the, the direct connection between Fight Club and all that, though, is that, like, the, even the things that I was using to escape from corporate America and the mm-hmm. system, those things started owning me, just like in the novel. Yeah. You know, like, Capoeira started owning me, sociology started owning me to the point where I just wanted a nice place, and that started owning me. Yeah. Well, you have a nice place now. Yeah, I got it now, but I can't afford it. Uh, I mean, we're already a month behind rent. You know, like there's there's no way out. And I mean, there's there's a lot to say about like how we wound up here and stuff like that. And I'm glad we have this roof for our head right now, but it's completely unstable. I'm completely anxious. I'm completely freaked out. Like, I, there's no jobs out there. The market for me. Would you would you ever leave society? Because I feel like this conversation surely has been had in some form in abundance in the '60s. For instance, a lot of people just like left. Uh, capitalistic societies, like we don't need money, we're just going to live in our miniature community. I Would want you do to that? leave society. 
not to live in a mini community, but like, I mean, we talk about kind of getting back to nature and learning. I mean, that, that involves a lot of education that I need, but the yeah. thing is I would never do that until I finish doing what I know I have to do here in the city, here in New York, which is, and the reason why yeah. I'm still stuck, the reason why I'm sticking it out here, the reason why I didn't move somewhere else where it's cheaper just to be an artist is because the, the fed, the New York city federal reserve is the fucking heart of Mordor. I mean, like when we talk about capitalism, what is capitalism? To me, what capitalism actually is, is the Fed. You know, Marx, Karl Marx's whole uh, Marxist sociology, if you will, came from a debate he was having with other intellectuals at his time who weren't doing shit. You know, these young Hegelians, mm -hmm. he was just like, all you guys do is bitch while people out there are starving. Like, like it's like, you know, they, the whole idea is we just have to, like, change our consciousness. We just have to find a new kind of religion or something to replace that. Or, And he's just like, no, man, it's economics. It's this division of labor. It's these factories. These people hate these factories. Here's why. It's, it's alienating and on and on and on. You know, what I see out there now are so many fucking activists, anarchists, if you will, who who don't focus on specific issues. They don't have any specific issues. They don't have any specific action to to leverage those issues or whatever their solutions are. It's just this abstract ranting against capitalism and these weird little self-absorbed neurotic art projects and poetry and things, this free expression shit that doesn't really contribute to any kind of sustained conversation in many ways. So you're critical of most activists. I hate the activist scene. That's I mean, so I couldn't show up yesterday because I got PTSD from the activist scene. Like, I mean, the hypocrisy of so many activists. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I got punched in the face by someone who helped to start Occupy Weed Street with at my birthday party in my bedroom at my last apartment. You mm -hmm. know I mean? Like, no, like, I, I, I get it. I get why most people aren't activists. Like, it makes sense to me. Yeah. It's hostile space. It's not safe space. That's so interesting. And I might be drawing, I might be beating this analogy to death, but, like, I feel the same way about, like, the personal development community where <laughs> I'm in it, but I'm critical of most of it, so I don't really want to be in it. I, I, I mean, the pickup community, I'm pretty much done with, except mm -hmm. you. I mean, I still do pickup. It's still yeah. a part of well, my I mean, life. That's like, like, I wouldn't consider myself part of the pickup community. Yeah, I, would, I don't either yeah. anymore, either. Like... There you go. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, shit. Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, like, in 425 Club, it's just, like, it's my attempt to create space for myself. I was just going to say that because space it's space so, for myself. It's, like, I was thinking, like, 425 Club is such a unique idea. It's really, it has to be for someone who's into 420, who's into, like, you know, and into martial arts, and then, like, it's just Harrison. He just it's picked, my kind of party. He, yeah. he picks his interests and put it all into one thing. That's fucking brilliant. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to do. I mean, like you're supposed to be the kind of change you want to see. Yeah. You know, I'm taking my face, my name off of it because it's not just something that I do. This is something that so many other fucking people do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's it's. I wrote a, a blog post on it on my blog. Anarchy isn't easy. You know, four reasons why stoners should start 425 clubs all across the world mm -hmm. and um. There's there's a long his long hidden history of marijuana and martial arts, cannabis and combat arts. Like and um you know, Joe Rogan's talking about how like pretty much 
more fighters than not are using this in UFC, and they're using it right before they fucking fight, he says. And I would, too. I love getting high and doing this. I mean, like, the, like, I mean, marijuana took my, my martial artistry to a different new it higher level. It makes you curious. It definitely makes you curious. I think, to, to your point about the meditation, like, it, I, I don't smoke a lot, but when I do, it's like I'm very, like, interested in details I would have overlooked before. Yeah, man. Which I think is part of why I don't smoke too much because I could spend hours thinking about like a sentence, you know, and it's like, I don't know if I want to do that all the time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are afraid of the abyss. You know, they say when you stare at the abyss, the abyss looks back mm-hmm. and it does. And it's great. Like, you know, a lot of, I mean, like my, my personal abyss rocks. I get lost in my abyss all day. My abyss is not necessarily a dark place all the time. I'm just going to make a note because I want to come back to this. Yeah. But. A lot of people, man, they just got nothing. And uh, when a lot of people start using drugs and opening their mind and getting their minds off of other people's expectations and back onto themselves, I think they tend to get freaked out with just how little is actually there. You know, just how empty and just how much pain and trauma and how little, how much has been taken away. And like, do you think life is suffering? Well, um, I think life is slavery. I think, like, I think the way that we currently have life organized right now is we are living in the largest social system of slavery ever, ever seen, ever. I mean, like, slavery did not end after the Civil War in this country at all. It just got more advanced. So would you, because this hits on my, like, ponderings about, like, what it would be like to have, an, like, a critical mass of people opt out of society and just live as his own nation. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had that conversation with myself a lot yeah. and I, like right away. I mean, I'm like, there's no fucking way I could do that. That's kind of a thing with cults. Too. I, I, I mean, my, my parents tried that and then I knew right away, you know, kind of talking to them, like just thinking that talking to them. I mean, like, yeah, it's just like, no, nah, like I, I like my comic books. I like my fucking warm spot to sleep. I don't yeah. want, I don't want to share my fucking weed with everybody all day. <laughs> like, and you know, like, like that, that that's the, that's the, that's the expectation everybody has when they when they start getting into activism that they're going to have to suffer. And the the thing that you need to understand, the thing that everybody needs to understand about activism, revolutionary activism, is that it doesn't come from revolutionary Mars. activism with quotes around it. Yeah, I mean, a book. There's a book by Michael Walzer called "Revolution of the Saints." Mm-hmm. The first radical activists were, were Puritan dissidents. You know, from from England. You know, these were people who were sick of like these unemployed vagabond classes. And this frivolous aristocracy that was draining the wealth of everybody, and they were like, "Yo, we gotta work. We gotta get to work. Like, we're we're important people because we fucking work all day, you know. And like, we we bring value to society. And like, these these quaint Puritans were so fucking weird that you know they decided to leave England and go to the United States and try to set up some shit over here. And uh, that fucked up a lot of things for people who were living here. But um. That, 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 the whole idea of activism, the whole idea of, of revolutionary activism in this country that, that, you know, people on the left who think they're following Marx are actually engaging in comes from this, this really weird fucking strain of Christianity. The whole idea, like when, when anarchists talk about mutual aid, you know, like mutual aid is something that exists between groups of friends, you know, people who know each other. But, like, you get all these fucking anarchists, these black block anarchist types who would come up and just expect handouts, expecting charity. Mm-hmm. You know, that line, like, it's, it's, 
it's a fine line between like this perverted Christianity and this anarchy. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of people use activism just as an as, as an excuse to be toxic and unfriendly people. Like a lot of people use activism just as an excuse to vent their bigotry on people who don't look the way they look. And it's it's very fucking hypocritical hmm. and it's it's hard to deal with those people. There was this girl I went to college with who um who quit her job like a year after college and started full time being a donation receiver for her church. It was like a very like uh you know, extreme Christianity where like her full time job was to ask people for money. And by the way, give money to my church too. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's activism is a hard world to negotiate, you know, but like, it's still, and I, that's the thing too. Like after Occupy Wall Street, I tried to go back to corporate America. I tried, I got a job again. I got a job at Deutsche advertising and you know, I faced just as much harassment there as I did other. I just, I mean, it was hard for me just fitting into corporate culture in general, but like, yeah, I got harassed there. I definitely got denied to work on certain accounts because they knew I was an occupier. And, um, I just left after a couple months cause it was just getting so insane. Hmm. You know, like, like, like I was worried I was going to start talking to lawyers and shit. So I just walked away. Do you think you're like unemployable now? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I work freelance writing and that's, that's really hard, but I mean, like, I mean, going, I mean, I, and I tried getting a job just canvassing again last summer for this, this car company. It was, I was not in a desk. I was running around outside. I just, I couldn't deal with that either. I mean, it wasn't a fair livable wage. And it's just like, you, you can only go so far when you, when you learn the things that I learn, when you know what I know about society when you know what it would take to fix it, when you know, when you know what's wrong with it, when you know what it takes to fix it, the thought of me going and doing something else that doesn't really uh, contribute to that direction, just, it, it drives me too insane. There's no amount of weed I can fucking smoke in order to get myself through some like just bullshit job. That's just going to make me, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. There's a certain point. And I mean, the thing about that critical mass opting out, I mean, that's not, that's not what needs to happen. You know, like Hollywood has fucked up our ideas of what social change looks like mm-hmm. as much as anything else. And like the people who, sometimes the people who know least about social change are the fucking people who think they're working the hardest for it. You know, this whole idea that people have to learn how to live with less, be more austere. That's such a Christian notion. That's not like a Marxist radical notion. But don't you like, so the society that we're talking about in ideals, do you think it's, because I think it's impossible given that we have so much scarcity with material goods. Like, uh, you know, uh, everyone's provided for is great when you have a lot of shit to give out. But when there's scarcity, people will hoard. There's no and, fucking scarcity. I mean, 1.1% of the world owns as much as the other 40. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, we, it's, there's no scarcity. There's just an abundance of slavery. And, and the, the, the root of it all, the economic root of it all, you know, that Marx would have been looking for, the thing that he missed in his own day is, is the monetary system, the way money is made. It's not the fact that we need money to live. It's the fact that one group of people own all the money and they actually charge the government and the elected officials that we elect, the money that they loan us as interest, it's so simple, it's stupid. But like we have to work to give them their own money back. 
That's what the Federal Reserve does. That's what that's what the shareholders of the board of the Federal Reserve do to us. And so in order to fix society, in order to end slavery, we don't really need to change that much. Not to make I mean like the the, the the thing that needs to have happen, you don't need to end the Fed, you don't need to storm it, you don't need to shut it down, you don't want to shut it down. You want money to continue to flow, but we don't want Wall Street to have that monopoly on the private privatization of money. You know, like the banker in Milwaukee in the monopoly game can't be this unelected, unaccountable board of people. That has to be nationalized. That has to be put under a new, uncorrupt branch of the government so that we can make sure that money is actually being spent on education and housing and food and healthcare and, you know, the basics as opposed to like these shitty fucking credit default swaps or like these, these prisons and these stupid wars and these, these huge tax breaks for these companies that make bullshit that, you know, they expect us to buy with what little money they let us keep for ourselves. Hmm. You, you, I, I think you once told me that you're like the militant wing of the marijuana legalization. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. You know, like, um, this, I'm, I'm beyond revolution. Like revolution hasn't worked, you know, rev, like, I mean, coming, coming together for this peaceful, nonviolent revolution in 2011 only made things worse the past five years for myself. And I think for the rest of the, it looks like for the rest of the country as well. I mean, like, I mean, I remember when we first started, it was like 1% of the world owns as much as like, it, it was, it was, it was, so you would, you would take up arms to unfuck it. If you had enough people behind you, what does, well, I want to start a conversation about what that would look like. Mm-hmm. What would that realistically look like? Fuck Hollywood. Like, like what, what, what is, what does insurrection look like? What does it look like? Well, what, what could it look like? Well, it's, it's happened in the past a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and it, um, it happens a lot with education. I mean, some of the, some of the best ins- one, you know, Capoeira, this was all about insurrection. Capoeira, in my opinion, is the best martial art for fighting against slavery, you know, and so, the language, the music, training together like that, mm-hmm. you get in shape together. You know, like the insurrection, you know, like think of, think of Spartacus's insurrection against the Romans, those gladiators who fought back. You know, they, they fought each other first to get in shape before they fought, you know, their, their bigger adversary. They, they worked out together, they talked, they figured out, they made plans and, and so I mean like that, that contentiousness that you get within activism, that, that, that veiled bigotry, that veiled resentment and hostility that turns so many people away for so many good reasons. You know, like I offer martial arts and lead to those people. Like I think people should be getting high and training in order to deal with your activist issues before we go into this bigger fight with this more heavily armed opponent, you know, like anger. The thing that you learn from martial arts too, is that anger is the worst way to win a fight. It's the quickest way to lose a fight. It's a sloppy, it's, it makes you less dangerous, not more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And all these fucking activists, like, they want to go out on the street just to get angry. It's like, this has to be, like, safe space for anger. It's like that, you know, I mean, that's bad Buddhism. You know that, too. Yeah. And it's just, like, that sloppiness, that, that misdirection of it all. It's like, So no. you're saying, though, that majority is just there to bark, and you want to, like... Let's get some bite. Yeah. Let's get some teeth in this. Hmm. You know, like, I mean, and this isn't the first time that martial arts have been used as a solidarity building exercise. But what would you fight against exactly? Well, first off, fatigue. 
you know, first off, just the the effects of society. I mean, this this is about getting in shape and getting healthy. And I'm not talking about getting into a straight up fight. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, realistically, that's not what this is about. You want to win without fighting. This is Sun Tzu. This is art mm-hmm. of war. You know, this is about de-escalation. You know, like you don't pull out the sword loses 70% of its power once you draw it. You know, like we haven't even like picked up the sword in a long time. We're alienated from our swords. Like we haven't, the, the people don't know how to fight, you know, like the, so you're saying it simply is the ability to make a physical change. That is the, your, it's like your cold war. Thomas maneuver. Jefferson said when the people are afraid of their governments, there's tyranny, but when the governments are afraid of the people, there is, there's liberty. Hmm. You know, and like what's been happening, you know, fucking Y2K, 9-11, you know, just Fox. It's just been the steady diet of fucking fear. And it's, it's always, it's been there, you know, ever since World War II. I mean, the, the bankers have used fear more and paranoia to get us distracted for forever. But, um, you know, one of my favorite philosophers, Baudrillard, you know, he said that, like, during the Vietnam War, the TV glowed with a perverse warmth. You know, this whole idea that, like, that, that steady violence that people are fed, that, that those images of violence that people get through their Internet screens these days, that's what keeps people pacified. That's what keeps, keeps people in line. It's like, oh, if I just do this, I get my nice, safe, warm bed. So would you want to redo the government? Would you want to put activists in, in the roles of elected officials? No. No. I mean, in some, in some cases, yes. I think there's some activists who would make great, um, great public officials. And in other cases, I think there are activists who I would like to tar and feather before they ever get to become politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, the thing that needs to change, the way that you, you clean up, the way you get dirty money out of politics is by nationalizing the Federal Reserve. Marx didn't have a very good understanding of what money was, but this was the fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. If you, if we really want that democratic socialism that Bernie Sanders is after, mm-hmm. he's right. He can't do it. You need a political revolution. What does that political revolution look like? It has to be an economic change. But if you want, if you want to clean up the corruption, you need to clean up the way money is made. Yeah, man. Uh, a movie about a Bernie Sanders type old candidate inspiring a physical D for Vendetta revolution would be a funny movie. Well, he's part of it. I yeah. mean, like, I was hoping to get out there before. Interesting movie, I should say. I mean, I mean, now is, I think his campaign is probably going to lose some steam the way I understand it, but. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, I mean, again, I've been kind of apathetic to politics, so I've never even thought about presidential elections until Bernie Sanders caught my attention. It's like, oh, this is something I actually want to think about. Yeah, he's yeah. great. I mean, I th- he's he's good on he's he's he wasn't great on marijuana when he yeah. first came out, but then he got a lot better on. You know, I, I I question that in myself too because it's such a twenty something thing to be all about Bernie Sanders. It's like it's like are we all just thinking a certain way? Like the fact that I'm joining <laughs> people like me who are thinking the same way, it makes me think like, oh, am I just going along with you know social media and stuff? I, I don't know. I question that myself. Yeah, I mean, I think you are to some extent. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernie caught you when a lot of other things didn't. I, and the same thing happened with Occupy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that, you ever heard of the Ash Line experiments? Mm-hmm. So it's it's another set of experiments. Usually, oh, on, with the three people who say that that line is shorter. Exactly. Okay, yeah, I do know that experiment. Yeah, when yeah. you when you see three or four people, you know, all who are like I should just say what it is for people listening who might. Yeah, so the Ash Line experiments um, is, is, is these series of experiments, and they would have um. 
the test subject walk into a room and there would be, you know, like a test administrator there, like a teacher figure and like four or five other participants all um, in the room waiting for this test to start. And then the person would sit down. They would hand out these these cards with some lines of different sizes on them. And then the teacher would ask a question, like, you know, which is the biggest line and or the smallest line or whatever. All the respondents would give an incorrect answer. You know, the same the four, incorrect the four, answer. Yeah, the four, yeah, they would all mm-hmm. give the same incorrect answer in order to motivate the, the test subject to see if he would give the correct answer. Yeah. And, like, overwhelmingly, a lot of people, you know, would effectively say 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's that whole thing from Orwell, that whole new thing. Yeah, we all just jump. Yeah, it's like uh, with the elevator, too. Like, if, if you get a bunch of people facing the wrong way in the elevator, a person getting on will just face the wall. That's that's a homework assignment that they will give you in sociology of deviant behavior classes. Hmm. And so, I mean, that, that those Ash Line experiments, conformity, yeah. that goes back to that whole idea that, you know, madness in, in individuals is rare, but groups, ages, epics, and norms is, is the rule. You know, and that, that, that thing about that, like, having like four or five people tell you the same thing, then it becomes, a, then it becomes like, then you think, then you yeah, identify. That's how brainwashing them. works. That's how advertising works. Yeah. I mean, they, they need to hit you with like five to seven ads before they get it in you, before you start even developing an opinion about it. Yeah. They don't even, they can't even get you to tell you whether or not they like it or not until like you've seen it. That's why like when you walk through the subway, they'll have like five of the same fucking poster right, right there. Because yeah. <laughs> that repetition catches your eye. That's why I use like at least two to four signs, just like repetition. Yeah, actually, now I enjoy the subway ads where they have like four or five ads in a row of the same thing, and it's like their variations. Like it's like reading a comic book. I like it so too. Yeah. yeah, I enjoy those ads. <laughs> um, I probably don't buy most of the things. But actually, you know, you know, I mean, it takes a few months before I'll buy like something I'm already interested in. Sure. Like I'm, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Sure. Yeah. And you know, um, I mean, the, like consumption and, and austerity and all that stuff. Those are themes that are prevalent. Four Twenty Five Club and like that whole idea of like taking that sacrifice and losing your comfort. I mean, I've done that. You know, and I don't, I don't think people should have to do that. I think that's completely unnecessary. I mean, that book for for is, is much. Um, as it inspired, you know, as much, as, as much action as it inspired, I mean, it was still a work of fiction that still gave people a lot of stereotypes about what anarchists are and what they should do and how they should behave. I mean, the notions of violence in there are very westernized, you know, and, uh, I think it's, you know, so, I mean, it's clickbait. You know, what I'm trying to do here is, is throw some clickbait out there for people to say, whoa, that's a real fucking thing. And then, of course, they're going to see it, and it's not going to be what they expect it to be. It's going to be something that looks way less badass. It's going to be, like, a bunch of old people, a bunch of young people. just. But, like, what's what's badass? What's dangerous? You know, in, in Capoeira, we, we work really hard to not appear dangerous so that we get people to drop their guards so that we can take them out. You know, like, in Capoeira, we always say, like, the more violent you try to be, the less dangerous you're going to be, you know. And, and what do we see here? You know, our law enforcement, it's just like Hollywood, like our, our cops. It's like it's like they're just trying to be, like, action stars or some shit. And I bet that's what they're watching when they're not at work, just these stereotypes. And they go off and, like, they probably have these little, like, hallucinations all day, like video game, first-person shooters and shit. It's mm-hmm. just like... You know, and so it's like the, the the cops, like the NYPD, ever since 2011, they've been run by the CIA. Yeah, I've always thought that with uh, the handful of, like, war veterans that I know, 
love playing first person shooters when they get back. And you like, and, and they don't want to talk about you know combat or anything, but they'll they'll play you know Medal of Honor all day. And that's I mean first person shooters, those games, so that's how they get higher kill rates out of modern armies. Mm-hmm. I mean they had a harder time. Like it was hard to get people to shoot at other people back yeah, in the day. The, in World War II, the firing rate was twenty five percent. Vietnam. Yeah, it went to 90-something. And, like, Iraq. Even, yeah. Did you, know. you, uh, you ever read the book On Killing? That's where I've heard of Okay, yeah, you know, that was um, – that book was one of the factors that made me not join the military. Like, I was in school to be a Marine officer, and I got my commission uh, right before I graduated school. I was supposed to be a lieutenant. I went in uh, – I, I was planning on going months before I read the book On Killing about how, like, how much killing people without remorse fucks you up. Yeah. I'm like, I'm probably going to end up as an infantry uh, officer, like – I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to fuck up my head like that. And I thought about doing that too, and like I think about doing it now also because, you know, the the thing is, I mean that that I what I'm saying, the more violence you go out there with, the less danger you actually bring. I mean that that I, I think that my hypothesis is that that holds true beyond that beyond, you know, one on one engagements. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you, if you look at like you know military strategy from the perspective of the art of war, I mean it like what they're doing. Way people fight, like why, why, you know, like I got there was a job um I got offered a while back. It would have been doing um social science with the army. Mm-hmm. I, I would have gone through basic training and stuff, and I would have gone to Afghanistan. I would have like done survey research and talked to people with translators mm-hmm. and stuff, and given reports back to the army to minimize cultural kind of misunderstandings. And that's something I still kind of like to do. Yeah. But I was like, yo, why are you? I was like, as I recruited, I'm like, do you know, like, did someone talk to you about me? Cause like, I mean, I'm, I'm an openly gonzo-toting anarchist. Like, you know, like. Wait, he, he, how did he find you? They just found my resume online. They're like, oh, oh we don't think you're the best candidate. You know, <laughs> they looked into me a little bit more, but yeah. like work like that, you know, like. It's like 425 Club. It's like, let's, like, you know, like, let's, let's talk about violence. Like, what should violence really look like? You know, and like, you know, less, I think the, the less getting high and like losing that anger, like, you know, getting into that Zen zone before you yes. practice martial arts to, to chill out. You know, it's like, you really want to get dangerous. If you really want to be a threat to the system, you know, like, let's train. Let's, let's fucking, let's start working our bodies and our minds together. Let's work out together to get into shape. And like, you see that in, in my article online, um, there's this popular resistance article about women's suffragettes, these women who were, who were uh, fighting for the right to vote. They started learning jujitsu together, you know, like in the late 1800s. That's crazy. Thinking about Susan B. Anthony doing jujitsu. This, this was in London. This was okay. in London. But exactly. Like, and the, there's, there's a cop. They show cops in a jujitsu hole. It's like, yeah, why wasn't that story told? You know, I mean, the Black Panthers, they were, they were all about, you know, karate and all those martial arts in the seventies. They love kung fu and all that. And if you look back at, at you know, African martial arts have a really rich history. There's all kinds of crazy African martial arts. Capoeira is one of them, you know? And, um, there's, there's this great book called Fighting for Honor by, a, a writer named Dash, TJ OB Dash. And he talks about black martial arts and the role that they played in plantation life all throughout slavery. And there was a black, they, you know, blacks were used as bodyguards. They knew how to, their blacks knew how to fight. You know, and some of those blacks, you know, definitely fought overseers and like, I mean, there, there are women who knew how to fight too. Like, and the basis of a lot of it was, was trickery, was deception. And Capoeira is all about deception. Jiu Jitsu, 
It's all about deception. It's all about seeing a different angle that your opponent can't see and using finesse over force. Yeah. You do Tai Chi. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just started doing Sambo recently. Oh, I wanted to learn that. Sambo is cool. fun. It's fun because, like, I you know, have a boxing and wrestling background. And it's yeah. Like, there's contact, but it's focused on grappling, but you still have striking. And I want to – yeah, if you got to work cool. out, I want to – Yeah, I yeah, do that for cool. years. Shit, what was I going to say? Well, uh, and, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> Russians, they, they've got great internal – Kind of softer styles and stuff too, but yeah, they have a whole totally different way of punching where like everything is a hook and a straight at the same time. It's very interesting. Like every European, Eastern European boxer fights that way. Interesting. Um, whereas American fighting, there's like a very strict, uh, d- the difference between straight punches and hooks. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, side, martial arts sidebar. I was going to say something about what you said, but I forgot. It'll come Shit. to you. Yeah. But combining martial arts and politics, I mean, the Black Panthers were were getting into to martial oh, arts yeah. as well. I was uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, black guy, about why it seems like black men are so interested in like Asian martial arts and martial arts cartoons more than more than you know white guys. Why like why is that? Black Americans are like that, and he said it's because you know it represents the struggle of. I'm paraphrasing. Obviously, I'm not a a black guy, but this is what he said. Every martial art comes out of oppression. All mm-hmm. those Chinese kung fu martial arts, like during the Qing Dynasty, it was illegal to practice martial arts. That's why they're all done in secret. I mean, martial arts prohibition is why there's so many different weird fucking styles of kung fu. Marijuana prohibition is why there's so many weird fucking different styles of pot. I was just about to bring us back to, to weed. It's the same idea. And I mean, the word for assassin comes from the word hashish, mm. of course. The Hashishin, you know, yeah. that Dan Brown novel, uh, Angels and Demons, yeah. kind of brought that back. But there's there's this Netflix documentary on the the assassins, you know, who uh, they supposedly – and there's a debate. It's controversy, I mean, because it was, you know, calling them assassins, these these drug-wheeling kill, killers. I mean, it's like pre-Reefer Madness stereotypes. Yeah. Reefer Madness before there ever was. But, like, there's, there's an element of truth to that. Like, getting high mm-hmm. and practicing martial arts – Makes you dangerous. Yeah, well, so, <laughs> the government doesn't want you to fucking know that. Yeah, it's just yeah. So doing drugs and having the ability to fight are two things that reduce the power the government has over you. In your words, is that right? I I, I mean, it's a power they can claim for themselves if they yeah. wanted it. Like if the cops fucking smoked weed and practiced martial arts together, they'd be way more dangerous than they are now. They yeah. wouldn't need these fucking guns. They wouldn't have to pull their fucking guns out and like shoot everybody but their fucking target. It's interesting. One of my first podcast interviews was with a DJ named Walker Barnard, and he said a similar thing about music, about how when you get everybody, you know, dancing and like really enjoying connection in their bodies and like just flowing with it, they don't give a shit so much about structured society. That's why music was always a part of warfare. You know, that's why you always had the drummers and the musicians. That was always an important thing. That's why music is a part of all of the African-based martial arts, and mm-hmm. like in capoeira. But like in those Zulu war dances that they do, they do they ha- they're singing and chanting and all that in order to keep everybody together, in order yeah, to keep it you on the mood. high. In Hawaii, you know, Kamehameha, those those um, Hawaiian martial arts, the Southeast Asian Pacific fighting arts, like all that chest slapping and stuff that you see before yeah. the soccer games. In a Maori, uh, yeah. Like I mean, Kamehameha, the Hawaiian and his resistance fighters. They were faced against the Captain Cook and the, those those volleys of soldiers, and they would fire a shot, and that loud noise, that that scares people as much as the, seeing someone fall. Mm-hmm. But because they're all singing together, they like like boom, they get disrupted. Then if, if even one person starts chanting, and a few more pop up, then boom, they're all back in there. They're chanting again. They're ready to go. 
and they just fucking swarm those colonialists. It's a way of like regulating the emotion of a group really quickly. It's a way of keeping the people together. Yeah. And people are still, people are always going to be more powerful than, than a gun. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You have a lot of people who are held together who were Gobacons, but it, like, it's so hard to maintain discipline amongst those units. The Navy SEALs are the best in the world because they can keep communication with each other through any fucking condition, through sea, land, air, whatever. Like, they, they know what's up. They can keep their discipline together because they train to such a high caliber yeah. through all the noise and the, the visual and all that, that stuff. Like, they just, their, their senses are, are in places that ours just can't comprehend, really. You know, and, and like, I mean, the, my a lot of this comes from my own heritage as an Oneida, you know, from Milwaukee, like, Growing up, my, my Indian daddy tell me stories, you know, like there's, there's people in my family who, when I went back home from my brother's funeral, were telling me stories about how, you know, during the American Indian movement in the sixties, they would just fucking beat the shit out of federal goon squads, throw them in a car, take them for a ride, like one at a time, just show them how, how it was like, you know, they would, they like goon squads, you mean, uh, FBI, like, like hired thugs, like not necessarily federal agents, but yeah. FBI goons paid to go fuck with Indians. And That'd be a good movie too. Shit. There was a movie. It's called Thunderheart. It was with okay. Val Kilmer. Hmm. And the, the, I mean, that was real shit. Like they, they showed that, that you can check that out. Yeah. Well. But I mean, like that's, you know, my stepdad, my, my dad, you know, when he was a kid, like they would, they, he told me about this occupation. Like they, he would have to get strapped up with like bullets and food and he would be in a car and they would like go across the line to get stuff to these people. And they thought it was a game. He's hearing bullets hit the car and shit like that. Whoa. And, um, you know, he, he told, he talked about how, like, there was some of the older guys who knew how to hunt and how to stock and they would go out at night and they would come up and they would call it counting coup. Like it was, it's a, it's a plane style thing too, but they would just like maybe put the gun up or, or tap the guy, yeah, you know, and then just be like, gotcha. And they, they'd fade out. That's, that's, that, that concept of like, cause like back in the day it was done where like you'd ride up on your horse and touch your With enemies. the coup stick, with yeah, that coup stick with the white feather on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just like a way of being like, I could have got you. But you I know? let you live. Yeah. And I mean like it, the psychological, what that, that shuts you down psychologically. And it's, most people. And it's compassionate. Cause you, you could have just sliced their You could have. Yeah. And you know, that's exactly what happens in jujitsu or judo it's like that submission lock yeah oh i got you, you know <laughs> like it and you can you. do that with the strike too yeah. like mo- what most western like boxers and tie boxers don't know is that you don't need to hit someone in order to knock them out you know in capoeira when you sneak that foot up or that hand up and they didn't see it you just shut when you do it right and if they're not a complete idiot you just shut them down like they just like oh my god you, you can make the lives flash in front of their eyes hmm. and uh do you think that comes from like the precision or the, like the clear mind of the you know practitioner where he can like project that emotion onto the um, the person getting hit? Uh, partially, it, 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 what I'm talking about has more just to do with timing and anticipation okay. and foresight. I'm just reading into it, maybe. Too but much. that's possible yeah. too. I mean, like that's like I mean that's all possible too. I mean, like to your point about music and martial arts too. I mean, even the United States military when they're sieging like. You know, David Koresh's compound or, like, some uh, other stories in the Middle East. I mean, they'll play, like, really angry, loud, mu- rock loud music yeah. to keep them up, to keep them unfocused, to keep their, their, their shit all fucked up so cool. that they can come in and attack. So it's – we've been talking forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just, I just realized the time. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. This was really interesting. I think like, so I think the, about... the final thing that about 420 Fight Club, the reason I'm doing this, you know, weed and martial arts have a long connection together. 
And I'm trying to use those things to get people interested in monetary reform, you know, a more difficult conversation, you know, so it's like, come down to the Fed. Why the, like we're, we're doing, get people training out there. And then it's like, why are we here? Oh, because if this place is nationalized with this bill, the need act will be okay. You know, it's actually, it's so effective because I'm, I'm not, you know, that interest in monetary right. reform, but I would totally go to a martial arts thing and listen to whatever was said there, you know? And the thing about it too, is that like, if just by being there, you don't fully understand what's going on, but your body, there are other people who know what's going on. Mm-hmm. See your being there is significant. And then, you know, the journalists come out and then the conversation starts anyway. So like, even if you're apathetic about monetary reform, you can still come through. I hope you do, man. I want to learn some Sambo. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to tai chi and too. Like, I've been, I've been, Sambo's been interesting for me for a long time. Cool, man. And that's the other thing yeah. about 425 Club, too. This, like, it's an amateur movement. Like, this isn't, I'm not a professional fighter. I've been doing this long enough. I feel confident enough to do it outside. I know a lot of people. Well, it's more of like a fun, it's not an actual, like, you know, yeah, fight club. Right. It's like you're, just, you're hanging out and practicing right. some martial arts. If people do want to go full contact, like, that can be negotiated amongst themselves. Like, but it's not going to be thrust on anyone. And I don't think anyone's anywhere near that anytime soon. But, like, there's, there's a certain anarchy to this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, it's, it's about getting martial arts. It's about bringing anarchy to martial arts and martial arts to anarchy. Like, martial arts used to be done out in the streets. Like, you didn't have time to go to your fucking dojo, pay a lot of money to learn how to fight off the samurais when they're coming to your store. Like, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're a slave. Like, you don't go to an academy. You sneak off into the woods to practice some shit so that you can fight your way out. Yeah. Well, so that's what we're trying to bring back into the present, man. Yeah, well, it's always uh, fun talking to you. Super fascinating. Love your perspective. Thanks, bro. Um, yeah. hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.